I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die historic on the Fury Road. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. Looks like traffic is a little bit heavy this morning in Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 66, which begins with Furiosa and the wives ditching the spare tires on the tanker, and it ends with the people leader literally counting the cost. Julia, are you prepared to execute Minute 66? <laughs> I am, although I have to admit I'm a little bit confused about the execution of Minute 66. Okay. I couldn't let our final season go by without making one last callback to Star Wars, but as we start off this minute, we get to see more of the War Party thundering by. As I mentioned at the tail end of Wednesday's minute, they are able to keep their speed up so that they aren't bothered by the mud or anything like that. And it doesn't seem like any of their tankers are swerving around, so I guess good on them. I guess when you put all the small vehicles in the front, it packs down the dirt for the bigger vehicles behind. Not sure it works like that, but okay. <laughs> for the purposes of this movie, if that's how it wants to work, then we'll let it. But we very quickly cut back to the war rig, which, as we noticed, got stuck in the mud on Wednesday. And so in an effort to make it easier to get out of said mud... Furiosa and the wives have started reducing weight in the tanker, and they're doing that by pulling some of the spare tires off of the tanker and letting them roll away. Yeah, this is the part that I'm a little bit confused about. I mean, I know that the tires are heavy, they're particularly large, and have huge rims on them, but can they really decrease the weight in any meaningful way? I mean, the tanker is full of milk and water which is enormously heavy. Are these tires making really any difference at all? I'm going to say yes, because we see the outcome of them pulling these tires off. But This is true. You would think that if they wanted to drastically reduce the weight, they would open up some of the valves on the tanker and let some of that liquid drain out. Strategically. Obviously, they don't want to get rid of all of it, it's sustenance, and they need sustenance. But some of it, half of it, water weighs eight pounds a gallon. So I don't even have any idea how much water they're carrying. Although the water hose was ripped off. Do you think all the water is drained out? It's possible. Leaving just a portion of the tanker filled with milk? That could be why the tanker is so back heavy. If the water is held in the center portion, and the milk is held in the back, and all the water drained out during the max fight, and when the hose was pulled off, then... It makes sense why it was swerving so drastically. That does make a lot of sense. But pulling off the tire is not the only thing that's happening around the tanker here. Max is off on his own little project. He is. We get to see a pretty decent close-up of these contraptions that Max is squishing into the mud tracks that their tanker has left. So these are the tips to Thundersticks. Okay, do you think they just made those? I think there is a huge cache of them on top of the tanker. And so he grabbed a bunch from there and then either pulled them off of the pole or broke off the pole and just used that to help stick it in the ground. 
Okay, so this cluster of four soda cans. That's what they look like. Yeah. You think that those were already clustered together? Yes. Okay. And they had a stick up there, which either, like you said, broke off or just pulled out. Okay. Because I wasn't sure if he made those clusters, which seems improbable. Given Um, the time. Given the time. They show us a bit of this stop, but considering that it started by them getting stuck in the mud, we see two things. We see the two spare tires come off, and we see the traps going in the mud. And then the next time that we see our rig, it's just driving away like nothing happened. Mm -hmm. They don't seem to have to do any real work to get the rig out of the mud. Yeah, not this time around. So it's kind of a question about what actually went on while they were stopped. I think the ground was dry enough that they were momentarily set back, but it was not that hard to get moving again because all you had to do is just reduce a little bit of weight and then they go. I am more focused on these charges that Max is placing because I think that these thunder sticks, a lot of the times we've seen them thrown, but I think the thunder sticks are designed where you hold on to the stick at all times And you just replace the tip. Like you thrust that charge at a car or into a car or onto the side of a buzzard vehicle. And you hold on to that pole and you pull the pole back, just stick a new charge on the end, and then you're good to go again. And that's why so many of these charges are just loose. I'm pretty sure there's a box behind Max that he's pulled all of these out of. Like when he starts jogging back between 14 and 15 seconds, it looks like there's a box there that he's just yanked these out of and i think it is just a simple construction it's four soda cans strapped together with a bunch of explosives inside and as far as your idea of how it's meant to be like jabbed and then you keep the stick we saw slit do it that way Mm -hmm. and at the time i think we thought it was a bit unusual because most of the time we see them thrown like spears Maybe there's two different kinds. Maybe there are kinds that are meant to be thrown like spears. And there are are kinds that are meant to be reusable. Jab it, pull it back, throw another tip on there. But with the trap laid, we get a nice wide shot of the war rig sitting in the middle of this swampy area. And you can see the lights of the war party on the horizon. They're still looming pretty close, even if they've got a nice lead. Yeah, there are times with the group where we kind of forget about the war party chasing them, especially like Monday when it was all about Capable and Nux. You forget that the war party is not that far behind. It's been guessed at five minutes. It looks like that five minutes has shrunk. Mm. Does not feel like five minutes. Well, that five minutes is about to get a bit longer because when we rejoin the war party, all of these lighter vehicles are starting to swerve around And they are not having an easy time of it. That is true. And I agree with you, but it almost looks like they're doing it on purpose. (laughs) It almost looks like they're just having fun. But I do agree they are out of control. Kicking up mud and all that. Yeah. Meanwhile, the war rig, like you said, we get this extremely wide shot and they're just rolling again as if nothing's wrong. And even Furiosa is back behind the steering wheel. Yep. I think she got the break that she needed. Maybe she got some sleep, but I doubt it. And it is her turn to drive again. I just took a little cat nap. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that she did because, as we'll see next week, things just are not going to be easy. So I hope she's well rested. Max is not. 
Yeah, but Max doesn't need rest. He doesn't need blood. He doesn't need any of those things that normal people need. <laughs> no, I guess not. So with Max in the passenger seat, he leans out the window as if he's listening for something. And then we cut back to where he set up those charges and we get to see what he was listening for as two of the lead vehicles get blown sky high. Like they're rolling end over end and land in a just spectacular pile of burning rubble, which causes all of the other vehicles to skid to a stop. I like the comparison. We were talking a lot on Wednesday about the little lantern that the wives were holding in the back seat and how it's this warm oranges that bring life with it, pushing out this oppressive blue. And we have that again. We have these explosions of orange and they just cut through this grim blue scenery. And for the wives on Wednesday, it was like this little bit of hope in a lantern and it glowed upon them. And it was symbolic of the future. And it was a peaceful, happy thing that we were looking at. And here with the war party, it is violence and death. That's what this orange color means to them. I look at this violent explosion here and it feels a lot more white to me like it's burning extremely bright compared to the oil lamp and so i see that more as open defiance that yeah you're hot on our trail but we're not going down easy in fact here we are lighting things up in your path blocking your way with this symbol of fire Okay, I like that. Because it was Max that did it to them. Yeah. They and, didn't do this voluntarily. And Joe is a villain. He's a symbol of darkness. And Max is a road warrior. He's a, a wasteland hero, as much as he may not want to be. <laughs> and so he would represent the light. And okay. this is him bringing the light to this character of darkness. And not only is he successfully able to stop the war party and all of its small vehicles, those vehicles then get stuck in the mud and all of the war boys hop out of their vehicles and they're scrambling across the mud trying to get these vehicles moving again after the explosion the war party stops behind them why don't they just go around and keep going is there something i'm not thinking of it could be that the war boys that were behind those two lead vehicles panicked they stopped and they caused the ones behind them to stop and the one behind them to stop it's just like one of those dash cam videos that you see where someone's driving along and then someone fails at a brake check or they sideswipe someone and then just before you know it, the whole highway is covered in crashed cars. It was a bad decision by the second in line. Which is why you're not supposed to tail the person in front of you, <laughs> Richard. But apparently they haven't learned that lesson. If they were allowing enough space for safe driving... They could have avoided the explosion and gone around and still be in pursuit. I acknowledge that in polite society, you don't tailgate, that you back off a little bit, give some room between you and the car ahead of you. But these guys are in a post-apocalypse and they're driving in formation. They're like ducks. Yes, they are doing the mighty duck flying V. And so everyone's behind everyone else and they're driving in a defensive formation, driving quick to pursue. And so it would have been a lot different, I feel, if they had different war boys second in line. 
You get what I'm saying? If they had anybody else who had the peace of mind to swerve around, they might have gone different. But Max didn't set up just one set of charges. He set up multiple charges going down the line of the trail that the rig was leaving behind. And so even if they swerved around, they wouldn't necessarily know. They could have hit more charges. Max set them up in the tread lines, but he could have also set some off to the side. We didn't see it. So I'm not taking it as gospel. Yeah. But it's a possibility, and they definitely didn't know. I like the idea of Max going a bit wide. Of course, the fleet is going to follow the tracks left by the war rig. In this environment, that's the only way they're going to follow them. But it's also a wide party of cars. So if you set some wide, you're still going to hit something. Mm -hmm. Someone's still going to hit you. (laughs) Roundabout second 42... We see Joe on his giga horse and the doof wagon pulling up. And I noticed that not all of the war boys are pulling cars out of the mud. One set of war boys in particular, they're sitting on top of the car carrier and they are just standing there saluting like good war boys do. I have to assume that the war boys put so much stock in saluting Joe that they think that is an equal, if not greater, use of their time Mm -hmm. and we do a nice zoom in on joe to see him standing there surveying his war party and as we cut to his pov we get another clue as to why those war boys might be staying on the car carrier because there is such a dense collection of vehicles and there are already so many war boys swarming forward that maybe they're exercising the good sense to maybe not put too many hands in the fire there are quite a few war boys running to the front. Which, hey, it makes sense. They're stuck in the mud. They got to push out anyway. Yeah. Uh, something I noticed in really in this entire minute that we're with the war party is that the Doof Warrior is lit up with a spotlight mm-hmm. because he is the herald. He is the communicator to the masses. He needs to be able to be seen and heard. But it reminds me of... I think it's the second Endgame trailer that came out, and this is months ago now, where they showed a lot of clips from previous movies. They were all set to black and white, except elements of red. And I'm sure that we are recording this before Endgame comes out, so I'm sure that it was evoking some emotion that we will feel during the movie. Mm -hmm. And by the time this airs, we will know all of that information. But I like how we've got a little bit of a Schindler's List situation going on where the color of that jumpsuit is highlighted against something that's incredibly monochromatic behind it. It's not exactly Schindler's List. We're not talking about the same subject material by any stretch of the imagination. But color scheme-wise, that's what I'm going with. Okay. I have not seen Schindler's List, so I'm just going to go with you on that. The whole Avengers Endgame trailer thing... Like, Spielberg did it first in Schindler's List. Oh, okay. Does that mean I should watch Schindler's List before Endgame? Uh, no. Like... No. Are they evoking anything there? No. Okay. Like, Schindler's List is an important movie to see because of the subject matter and the way that Spielberg handles it, but it's not a movie that I'm going to sit down on a lazy Saturday and just watch. (laughs) Like, watching that movie is a dedicated event, something that requires a certain level of respect and consideration. It's not something like Fury Road that you can just sit down and watch and have fun with. 
Yeah. If you're sitting down to watch Schindler's List and you're having fun with it, <laughs> I got bad news for you. Okay. But getting back to the movie at hand, the people leader pulls up in his limousine next to Joe on the Giger horse and he starts shouting about how they are down 30,000 units of guzzoline, 19 canisters of nitro, and the list goes on. Like, we are not going to hear the rest of that list until next week, but he is very closely keeping track of exactly how many resources they are using, which goes back to how he was described all those weeks ago, that here comes the people eater to count the cost. Very much so. He is living up to his name and reputation. And I think also the sentiment, I think it was the bullet farmer. From the bullet farm? Yes. Okay. Who said all this over a family squabble. It lives up to that. Joe doesn't care what the cost is. To him, it's worth whatever. But to the people eater, no, he's counting the cost. With him saying that they're down 30,000 units, it makes me wonder, are they refueling on the fly? Do they have the ability on the people eater's limousine to have an arm swing out or to toss a hose and just refuel on the fly? Kind of like how some Air Force planes can do that. Yes. You come up behind the tanker plane, they drop the little hose down, refuel on the go. As far as like refueling in airplanes goes... It's all about skill. You know how to do it. And you can do it, I don't know if with ease is the right phrase, but you can do it uneventfully and successfully. So with the right skill set, they can handle that. I also have to wonder if these numbers are rough estimations. Like, is he looking at the amount of vehicles that are running, knowing roughly how much gasoline they're using, guessing roughly how many canisters they've used, or is someone actively feeding him information? Ooh, I could really go either way on that. I imagine, considering his line of work, he's probably really good at estimating. Yeah, he's probably got an algorithm. Yes. How many hours they've been on the road, how mm -hmm. much, how much and they've pressed through already. When they had to take a break waiting for the rocks to clear, they probably fueled everybody up. Mm-hmm. So I think at that point, he had a hard number. Like, okay, we're down this many units from the tanker, and everybody's topped up, plus the estimation of what's happened since. But I think it's also a little bit of B, that he has somebody, that he has assistance. Thinking of other people who count the cost, like accounting firms. You know, it's not just one person handling the resources for a group this size. It's a group of people. He's got little meter crunchers. Yeah. I was going to say meter maids, but... I don't think he has meter maids. No, I don't think so. Meter misters. There you go, that works. <laughs> so, that pretty much wraps up this week. There's not much more to talk about, so we're going to put things off until Monday when we come back to talk about more stuff. The people eater is going to finish his expenditure report... The organic mechanic is going to sharpen his knife, and the bullet farmer, who's come from the bullet farm, will get just, ah, a bit anxious. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Bautista of DanielBautista.com. 
Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 66 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time. Thank you.